Coming up, we're going to talk yet again about the coronavirus, and then we're going to be joined by Colonel Michael Lewis. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Everybody, happy Tuesday and welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, come with some of the particulars. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. There we post articles that we discuss on the show, also some that we don't discuss. And you can uh, comment and let us know what you think. Also, at Twitter and Instagram, uh, you can do that uh, at uh common good talk you can find us online at 1160hope.com and podcast get your podcast wherever it is you get your podcast subscribe rate and review uh so anyway it's a beautiful tuesday afternoon ian speaking of facebook uh like some other people you posted on our facebook page uh what i thought was a conspiracy theory today i was texting you going really we're doing conspiracy theories now but then i actually clicked on it And uh, you got me. It was a good joke. It was funny. And uh, yeah, I just have to admit that you got me. It makes me so happy that you actually believed for a split second that I was posting that in all actuality. It was out of character. Let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I'm the only one that you got on that one because it has like a ominous face of Dr. Fauci. And then one of those doctors who's been on all the conspiracy theory stuff. And I was like, what is he doing? I literally wrote the text out and I didn't hit send. I was like, maybe I should open it. And then I was like, oh, what am I thinking? I, I should know him better than that. I'm pretty I'm pretty grateful that I was able to, to fool you. <laughs> you got me. Uh, I do want to give a special shout out at the start of the show here. Today is my youngest daughter, Emily's 11th birthday. And uh, so it's been a day of celebrating in the Fromm house. In fact, just before the show started here, uh, we did one of those, what a lot of people are doing in the quarantine, those drive-by parades with people where they just line their cars up and drive by honking their horn. Right. And uh, it was really fun. It was, uh, you know, because your daughter, you know, she can't have a party. She's not at school doing stuff. Uh, so it's kind of the next best thing uh, to having all these friends, people from church, friends from school, people from the neighborhood come driving by with signs for her, honking the horn. It was really kind of a cool thing. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I think that might become like the wave of the future. There's like no cleanup needed people where they just throw in presents out the window as they drove by. Is that how that went down? I got to be honest, man. If this could replace the birthday party, I'd sign <laughs> off on that in a heartbeat. People would slow down and hand out their gifts. Uh, other people generally tend to some of the older people. They didn't even open their windows. <laughs> it was really kind of funny. Uh, but they would uh, they would hand their gifts out the window. And the whole thing took like 10 minutes. And uh, I don't know. I was also struck that seeing all these people, a lot of people who I haven't seen in a long time because of our stay at home order, Uh, you've touched on this before, but it's every time I see people that I haven't seen in a while, it's really kind of strangely emotional. And it was again here seeing different people from different areas of our lives who we hadn't seen in a while coming to celebrate my daughter. It was both fun and kind of an emotional activity. Yeah, I I wouldn't say strangely emotional. I was sharing with you a few weeks ago, we had a a parade for a friend of ours, uh, a friend of ours at at church had passed. And so we organized a little bit of a parade past her house and it was in a cul-de-sac and as you know the cars that were in front of me started to turn around and then drive the opposite direction down the road i found myself getting really emotional it was why and and it's again because you it's people you haven't seen in a while and you're only getting a chance to see them for a split second and like it's a pretty somber occasion and gosh just seeing them like that one by one by one was uh i i was surprised i think by how emotional it made me feel but uh, it was beautiful but i i completely understand what you're saying yeah it's a reminder of just how good it is even when you can't be you know touch the people just to be within a car's length away from them was uh, really fun and so to see my daughter honored in that way by her friends and friends of ours was really kind of fun well the reason we're doing this and this is of no surprise is because of the coronavirus pandemic and our stay at home order and all of us being at home and so since that happened now going on i don't know eight weeks ago uh, Ian and I have started most of our shows by 
by just kind of highlighting what's going on, what what are the new things. And so just want to do a couple of those, and then we'll discuss them a little bit. Uh, former Governor Rauner, uh, he was our Republican governor before J.B. Pritzker, the Democrat, took over. Um, the former governor uh, called the closures imposed by the current governor during the pandemic, quote, worse than the disease, and criticized Pritzker's coronavirus restriction. So not a surprise. Uh, part of that goes with kind of how Republicans and Democrats are kind of dealing with this differently, but also uh, a chance to go at one of his rivals. But that was Governor, former Governor Rauner today. Uh, secondly, uh, the DuPage County mayors, that's you and I both live in DuPage County, and the DuPage County mayors have uh, written a letter to the governor asking for the extended stay-at-home order exemption to uh, for an exemption to reopen businesses in this article at ABC seven Chicago, mm. uh, it references a restaurant in your town uh, in Naperville called allegory that said their sales are down 75 to 80% wow. uh, depending on the week. And that's what this article that it quotes the mayor of Naperville, the mayor of Oak Brook. Uh, and, and I know that the mayors of DuPage County are trying to get us to no longer be uh, tied in to cook County but also are trying to get it so that some of this stuff gets loosened. Later in the show, we're going to talk about churches and some of the steps that churches take. And lastly, I want to highlight uh, a new report came out, uh, 471 additional deaths at long-term care facilities in Illinois due to the coronavirus. And why that's significant uh, is that now it means that uh, almost 50%, 48% of the deaths uh, attributed to the COVID-19 pandemic in the state of Illinois, 48% are at long-term care and nursing home facilities, mm. which has led some people to say that that should change our strategy. Like, let's just focus on how to keep those people primarily safe, but start opening up other ways. Uh, and so pick whichever one you want of those. Uh, and I wonder if the conglomeration of all of those causes you to say, yeah, we should reopen or no, we got to be safe, or you just kind of go back and forth depending on what you read. Yeah, I do kind of feel myself sometimes going back and forth. I I can certainly It's weird because, you know, I'm not a I'm not a medical expert. Uh I'm not an economist. There's certainly you and I for the show, we're doing a lot more reading than maybe we otherwise would, and it does seem like on any given day you're reading something that contradicted what the smart person from yesterday right. said. And then on the other side of that, of course, you have a lot of party politics. There's a lot of you know, partisan weighing in, which is, I guess, unavoidable. There's you and I right. run religious circles. So you're seeing both ends of that spectrum. Uh, it was odd. You mentioned allegory. You know, that's actually where we had dinner on Saturday. Got some curbside oh, wow. pickup. It's where my, my wife wanted to have uh, her Mother's Day dinner from. It was delicious, by the way. Allegory in Naperville is phenomenal farm to table food. Farm to your Trump uh -oh. food now, I guess. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was odd, though, because I haven't I haven't really ventured into downtown Naperville in a while. And it was a little eerie how much it felt like a ghost town. And then yet you'd look the other direction and there's like a crew of a dozen people hanging out by the fountain. You're like, wow. oh, it's just, it's just an odd sort of juxtaposed 10 minute drive. Like, well, I'm, on one hand, this feels really odd. And then the other hand, you're like, oh, they, they seem to be behaving as normal and that I imagine is not a unique experience. Probably a lot of people listening are feeling that same kind of weird tension, but uh, yeah, it's, it's bizarre to me, man. I don't, I don't know where you put yourself in all this. It's so weird because uh, I still know very few people who have gotten sick. I don't know anyone, you know, and I hope this continues. Uh, I don't know anyone in my sphere, church, family, friends who has passed away from this. Um, and, and so that kind of, it becomes hard to keep, the gravity of it in your mind, right? Like right? You see the numbers on CNN, you see the numbers all across, but then you're going, I don't know anybody. And so I find myself, you know, kind of tending towards the, I don't know, let's start loosening up, let's start doing it. And then you read other articles and you get kind of drawn back. So I'm with you. It, it really, uh, this, almost the struggle of too much information right now uh, becomes difficult. And you add, the, you add the church layer on top of it, which we're going to discuss in the next hour. And it becomes it all becomes difficult. So uh, allegory sounds really good uh, for my daughter's birthday tonight. Uh, she got to choose the restaurant. And going back to a much earlier conversation of ours, I'm going to have to do Olive Garden tonight, which I know you're a fan of. But uh, <laughs> it's a labor of love on my part tonight. <laughs> I'm sure really, really, really suffering for the family, Brian. 
<laughs> well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Colonel Michael Lewis. Uh, he's going to talk. Uh, he is he is uniquely qualified to discuss the COVID-19 pandemic. We're excited to talk to Colonel Michael Lewis next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey! Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, we're glad to have you joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, one of the things we love most about this show is the people we get to talk to. Uh, and that is certainly the case with our next guest. We are thrilled to be joined by uh, Colonel Michael Lewis. Colonel Lewis, thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be with you guys today. Absolutely. Could you introduce our, yourself to our audience? Uh, tell them whatever it is you would like us to know about yourself. Uh, well, you know, I am a retired Army colonel. Uh, spent 31 and a half years in the Army uh, by way of graduating from West Point. Spent a couple years in infantry divisions around the world before I decided to go to medical school. Went to Tulane University Medical School down in New Orleans. Uh, had every intention of being a surgeon like my father. And uh, somewhere along the line, I, I discovered preventive medicine uh, and did my training at Johns Hopkins University, Walter Reed Army Institute of Research in public health, preventive medicine, and infectious diseases. And while I was there, I, I uh, created a program called the Essence Program. It was the, the first and largest syndromic-based surveillance program that's now the, the basis of the CDC's National Syndromic Surveillance Program. And a lot of the data you see uh, that's attributed to Johns Hopkins that one of the big sources of data for that uh, that we see on a, on a daily basis now. And my reward for that was I got to go to Asia and I established the Department of Defense's Global Emerging Infections Program oh. uh, in, at the Army Research Lab in Thailand and happened to be there. So my job was to run around Asia looking for partners and new diseases uh, and raise the flag. Hey, there's something out here. Hmm. We better pay attention to it and happened to be there at the time when SARS happened in 2003 and bird flu and a number of other uh, interesting outbreaks. So um, uh, and eventually came back to the U.S. to teach medical students and retire. And now I'm private practice and doing my own thing with uh, a number of projects and nonprofits and writing books and things like that. Mm. Wow, that's remarkable. Okay, so I, I have a couple of questions. One, what is it like to create and develop something like the Essence Program? And two, the question that's probably in everyone's mind, how has that research and that work changed in the last couple of months since this pandemic? <laughs> well, what was it like to create? It was um, I needed a project. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And I didn't realize that we were supposed to like, you know, just have a little project and a presentation. I actually created an entire program that <laughs> in many ways changed epidemiology. Um, mm. uh, you know, the, they, they put together a, a conference to talk about my work. And that was the first of, I don't know, probably now 20 years of uh, the International Society for Disease Surveillance. And it, just this idea of using syndromic surveillance um, and it was really a data mining program to look at the concept that you don't go to the emergency room with a diagnosis. You go to an emergency room with symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so my idea was tap into the DOD's data systems on a real-time basis to see and map this out, you know, over over time and and to see if there was a mismatch. Like all of a sudden we're seeing too many uh, unexplained fevers or respiratory illness or both. Mm. And, you know, do, how does that match up to historic data and does, does it raise a red flag? Mm. With all that we're going through right now with the coronavirus uh, pandemic, I'm wondering if from all of your training and all of your studies, uh, if, if you could project for us what you think is coming down the road here in the next month, six months, a year, what, what's in our future here in your opinion? Well, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Unfortunately, you know, yeah. it'll take a couple hours of. of <laughs> but um, in, in summary, I would say that I think you know we're going to see. I think as it gets warmer, you know, as summer hits us, uh, people are going to start getting outside, and you know, 
I think that's a good thing. I think that mm. uh, getting fresh air, sunshine, being active and getting out of the house, most of the transmission of this COVID virus is being done indoors and in, in mm. tight quarters. So uh, with summer and people getting outside and hopefully states will open up their beaches and let people be active, I think we're going to see a, a dramatic fall off um, that basically corresponds to temperatures around the country. Hmm. Um, I'm concerned about the fall. Uh, you know, every year, September and January, if you have kids or had, you know, little kids, kids get sick in September yeah. and January at school because right. they're mixing viruses from vacations, whatever. I think that's going to be exaggerated. I hope our response is not exaggerated because mm-hmm. uh, we really, uh, you know, and then longer term, I think the economic damage, the unemployment, the loss of jobs, the bankruptcies, the loss of small businesses, I think we're just starting to see the the, the very beginnings of that. I, I think that mm-hmm. that's going to do so much damage to our psychological and even physical health uh, in the long run that uh, that's what really worries me 12, mm-hmm. 24, 36 months from now. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm really curious, what do you make of – uh, one, the vast differences in responses from state to state. And two, one of the things Brian and I talked a lot about on the show is all the conspiracy theories we're seeing and how do you actually navigate who to listen to? Well, don't listen to the conspiracy theories. Number one. <laughs> um, you know, so why I, you know, one of the things I talk about is how to deal with the stress of this. Um, you know, I, I was running around Asia during SARS. I was not worried. I was not stressed out about SARS at the time. Um, I'm not stressed out about this either. I, you know, it's, but how do you deal with that stress is number one, turn, turn off the news. <laughs> stop, stop paying attention to all your uh, friends. You know, we, we, we have, we have 50 million new epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists, thanks to Facebook and Google. Um, <laughs> you know, we just got to turn it off. I mean, we talk about limiting screen time for kids because we're worried about the damage it's doing to their brain. We need to limit screen time for adults yeah. um, because how much damage is that doing? And, you know, get to the basics of lifestyle medicine. Get outside and exercise. Get sunshine and start eating healthy. You know, how much alcoholism are we going to see out of this? I just, the damage is just going to go on. And it's good, the gift that's going to keep on giving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to put you in an unfair spot, but here in Illinois, you know, our governor, we, we've got a pretty conservative uh, opening up, if you will. Uh, do you think that's the right approach right now? Or are you kind of more in favor of reopening more quickly, like we some see some states do? How do you navigate that question right now? Unfortunately, I think the, the, the national conversation is being driven and has been driven by New York City. And mm-hmm. that's not right. I mean, yes, Chicago, Detroit, L.A., you know, big cities do have to worry because of that confinement and the crowding uh, that just comes naturally with cities. So we, we need to take this really almost on a county by county basis um, and or region by region. And we shouldn't be treating, uh, you know, a rural county in Iowa the same as we are New York City. I mean, it's just absurd. And so um, I think that I lean a little bit more towards an aggressive approach. The idea of, you know, Chicago shutting down the lakefront, not letting people enjoy the park and the sunshine as the weather gets better, I think is absurd. I think it's doing more harm than good. Gotcha. Well, Colonel Michael Lewis, we could talk to you for a lot longer. We're really grateful with the last 30 seconds or so. I do want the people let people know that you have a book out called When Brains Collide, uh, what every athlete and parent should know about the prevention and treatment of concussions and brain injuries. Where can people find out more about that book if they're interested in that? Well, you can get When Brains Collide. It's available on Amazon. And uh, when I retired, I started a small nonprofit, brainhealtheducation.org. And I'll leave you with one last thing. You know, in World War II, the British had the saying, and with posters and everything, is keep calm and carry on. We really need to be doing a lot more of that. I, I would throw in, you know, some little bit of CBD, uh, hemp oil wouldn't hurt. To keep calm and take CBD would be a great idea to to help keep everybody a little bit more calm than what we are. 
<laughs> but we appreciate it. Colonel Michael Lewis, uh, graduate of U.S. Military Academy at West Point and Tulane University School of Medicine. Uh, quite the career. We're really grateful for you taking the time here. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. And hopefully we can do it again soon. We'd love we would that. love to. We'd love to. Well, you're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Lots of articles there that we've discussed, some we haven't. Uh, we are discussing a funny YouTube clip that Ian put up there before that you got to go to the Facebook page if you want to see it. <laughs> and uh, you could do that at the Common Good Radio Show. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can find us online at 1160hope.com. And as always, our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, uh, just subscribe, rate, and review. Well, we're going to talk about an article that is, uh, when I saw the uh, headline of it, it just made me laugh. It says, keep Christianity weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we do that, let me tell you and remind you of something we're doing here at the radio station, because during this coronavirus pandemic, we know that so many businesses have had to close their doors or reduce their hours. And we also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. So if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. That's all one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form, and we're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. It's totally free. No catch. Go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Uh, well, at mereorthodoxy.com, mereorthodoxy.com, we have this up at our Facebook page. Uh, Jake Medor wrote an article called Keep Christianity Weird. What does he mean by that? So it actually caught my attention because Michael Frost has a, uh, a really great book by the same right. name called Keep Christianity Weird, Embracing the Discipline of Being Different. This is not associated with that. And I, I've actually never been to mereorthodoxy.com. Someone I know posted it, though, and I thought it was pretty interesting. So let me just read a little bit from the top, and uh, we'll get into the weeds. Starts by saying, Oliver O'Donovan begins his, uh, the sixth chapter of his Desire of the Nations, a chapter concerned with the status and legitimacy of Christendom by considering what made the political witness of the early church compelling. So I'll stop right there. That might already be <laughs> compelling for somebody like, wait, what? what What does he mean by political witness? I posted something earlier today yeah. even on the politics of Jesus I saw that. And a couple of people had made comments like, yeah, it's good in concept, but it's biblical, not political. And I was like, ooh, I can't wait to talk about this on the show. Anyway, here, here, <laughs> here's the quote, the quote from the sixth chapter. It says, Christ had gone up on high. He had led captivity captive and given gifts to men. So the nations and rulers of the world were confronted with the rule of God, triumphantly present in a community that owned no other rule. No account of the pre-Nicene church can do it justice if it overlooks the extraordinary missionary triumphalism to which this faith gave rise. These Christians saw themselves riding on the wave of the future, conquering society with the word of truth and the blood of the martyrs, God's own strategy for success. It was only a matter of time before the pagan empire, too, with its repellent idolatry, would yield before Christ's army. And so it happened, and as it seemed, at the Millivan Bridge. One way of reading New Orthodox contributor Tara Isabel Burton's weekend essay in the New York Times is that it would be an exercise in missionary triumphalism. It's a swagger to Burton's prose, no surprise to those who wisely read her regularly. But the swagger isn't merely the swagger of a gifted stylist. It has been in Burton's pre-conversion work. Rather, it's the swagger of a person who has encountered reality and then turning back to view the unreal offerings of a world and rebellion against its creator rightly reckons that reality is far more interesting. This, of course, is precisely what makes both Chesterton and Capone so delightful to read. There's not a trace of fear in either of them. So I'll stop right there. I don't know if any of that is compelling to you or interesting to you, not just from a kind of 30,000 foot perspective, but particularly given like our cultural moment right now. Yeah, it's just it's so hard to uh, to to know how to synthesize our politics, right, and our faith. Like it's just such a difficult uh, thing to do, and I appreciate them 
the way they're talking. What What is it that stood out about the beginning of this for you? You said when you were reading it, it kind of jumped off the page to you. Yeah, I, for me, it was it was more just the concept in general. It, it didn't actually really hit till uh, down at this part. Rather, it is an embracing Christianity that they have embraced a vision of the good life that confounds all of the prominent visions currently on mm-hmm. offer in the United States. Quote, more and more young Christians disillusioned by the political binaries, economic uncertainties and spiritual emptiness that have come to define modern America are finding solace in a decidedly anti-modern vision of faith. As the coronavirus and the subsequent lockdowns throw the failures of the current social order into stark relief, old forms of religiosity offer a glimpse of the transcendent beyond the present. Mm. Many of us call ourselves weird Christians, albeit partly in jest. What we have in common is that we see a return to old school forms of worship as a way of escaping from the crisis of modernity and the liberal capitalist faith in individualism. And that to me is is part of what I find so fascinating because it feels like so often the church interest is on what's the next thing what's the next wave right. how do we pivot and adapt and I, I don't think any of those are bad questions but like i feel like i've been banging this drum for a long time i think young people in particular are going to be more compelled by what's ancient what's historic yes. and that's part of what and i think frost would even would agree in a, in a kind of different methodology that that's part of where the weirdness comes from so much of our hyper adaptability in our you know the when you and i were in were in college a lot of the phrase was like relevant how do we that's right. how do we remain really really relevant which again is not bad that's good contextual hermeneutic i think it's important but i think sometimes our hyper obsession with relevance has led the church to lose a lot of its weirdness because we fear looking different from all the other offerings and i think young people in particular are saying we want your offerings to look at. We could, we have access to whatever we want, whenever we want. That's right. What does the church uniquely offer, especially in a time of pandemic or crisis or fear, uncertainty, which we're all experiencing to some degree? I just think the church has an opportunity. And again, I'm, I'm not a missiologist. I'm not an expert in any of these fields. So maybe, maybe it is, maybe it is the, the blending of the futurist and the person who has like a deep love for the history coming together and uh and creating some kind of hybrid but that that weirdness to me i think in this moment now more than ever is really really important yeah that's really well put i feel like you know we've read all those studies we've talked about them here on the show of um the younger generations being drawn to uh liturgy being drawn to um older expressions of the faith and i i really enjoy how this article i really appreciate how this article ties that into um there, in some ways, it's a reflection not just of the churches that we have set up, but also uh, of of culture in general, of society in general. Right, seeing right. Uh, the individualism, some things, and then they, they're looking about how that seeped itself into the American church. Going, I don't want that. Uh, I want everything different than that, uh, and that that's uh, where it comes. And I remember I was. Uh, lucky enough to take a class while at Wheaton from Bob Weber, who is well known for oh, this. Yeah. Uh, and man, you sit in that class and you, he has since passed on, which is sad. But I remember sitting in that class going, oh, my gosh, now I understand why people are even though I didn't end up in a liturgical church going now, I get it. Like, I get why people are drawn to that, um, that kind of which, which from the outside people go, that's weird. That's that. That's the point of this article that right. it's weird, but that that's the draw away from the individualism and not everything needs to be all new. Yeah. I like how he ends this too. When he talks about missionary triumphalism, it is courageous, joyful, and relentlessly focused on the majesty and beauty of God as he is presented to us in the Christian message to that, mm. uh, to the extent that the weird Christianity likewise shares in these goods, we should rejoice it is receiving its 15 minutes of fame, but the triumphalistic Christian of the past shared something more than their property in common joy. Quite often they shared the same place and cause of death. True martyrdom yeah. is most certainly weird, but it will never be brandable or even punk. <laughs> <laughs> That's really well written. A lot of times I figure out how well written these articles are by how they end, like with just right. that punch. But uh, a really good article at Mere Orthodoxy. We'd encourage you to read it uh, at our Facebook page. We would love to hear what you have to say. Well, coming up next, we are going to go back to the blog of not only a pastor that we look up to, but can we say a friend of the show now, Scott Sauls? We're going to read an article from his blog coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're glad to have you here. You can uh, find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com, and get our podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, Ian's going to tell us about thriving, but you know, we didn't do our daily weather report because you and I did a lot of complaining earlier in the week about it being so cold. Man, it's sunny and nice out today. We need to, we need to, uh, acknowledge when this weather is gorgeous. It's a good Chicago springtime day today. I mean, we don't have to do anything, Brian. We can. We it can. is our show. Good point. <laughs> it is our show. We're not it makes me into the weather. I'm looking out the weather at the green grass right now and the sunshine going, okay, Chicago, you're getting it done today. You're doing oh, well. See, that's today. something I can complain about. I have no windows to look out. I'm just, uh, I'm just deep in the basement with no windows or any signs of life outside this room. So later in the show, I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's snowing. <laughs> just to mess with you. <laughs> just to mess with me. Sure. That's fair. I have a conspiracy theory video I'd like to send you. <laughs> I'll believe it. <laughs> I am. I am the person that conspiracy theories uh, videos are made for. Apparently, after I fell for yours. So, uh, so one of our friends of the show, Scott Sauls, he wrote yet another great blog uh, at scottsauls.com. Before we look at that, though, Ian is going to share about our good friends at Thrivent. I would love to, Brian. A couple of <laughs> things. One, Thrivent Financial. It's a Fortune 500 non for profit, which a lot of people don't realize is even a thing. There's not a lot of them. Thrivent's one of them. They've been around for more than 100 years. I love them. I've been a Thrivent partner for seven or eight years. They help with really pretty much every financial conversation or discussion or question I have. Uh, also, though, if you're looking for a career change, Thrivent.com slash careers is a good place to head. You don't even need to have a background in finance. It's just a great organization if you like coming alongside people and helping them out. Also, they're hosting a whole heap of really wonderful, helpful webinars and they're all, as always, totally for free. So we're posting those over on the Facebook page. You can also check their Facebook page out. They have a big national one, but there's also one specifically for Chicagoland. I'd highly, highly encourage you to go and produce their website, produce their Facebook page, because they're putting out a lot of really, really helpful content. That was really well done. So Scott Sauls, a friend of ours, uh, Christ Presbyterian Church in Tennessee. He's like that. He's been on the show one time, and I was like, friend of ours, friend of the show. Uh, but he is a pastor that we quote all the time. His blog at scottsauls.com, S-A-U-L-S.com, is, is a must-read. His Twitter account, he's a great follow um, and a great preacher as well. Uh, so uh, at his blog, he wrote this week, uh, when it's when it all still hurts a month after Easter. Let me just read the beginning of this for us. He says it's a month after Easter and the resurrection has been sung about, preached about and celebrated. And yet the world is still bruised. Mm-hmm. As one writer has said, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. At least for now, we still live with the groans spoken of, spoken of in Romans 8, the thorns in the flesh spoken of in Second Corinthians 12. The sorrows and fears spoken of in the Psalms and the death, mourning, crying and pain spoken of in Revelation 21. With or without a pandemic, the mortality rate is still one person for every one person. Some are afraid to die, while others are even more afraid to continue living. And it shouldn't be lost on us that after Jesus rose from the dead, one by one, each one of the disciples walked a path that led to martyrdom. The only one who was spared was John, who died as an unjustly incarcerated man. And then he says, the following reflection is written with all of these past and present realities in mind. Uh, Talk to me about just his beginning, his introduction there of what we uh, theologically often call the already not yet. Yeah, the already not yet. Do you you find that that's like a phrase people are familiar with? I I was thinking about this the other day. You and I use it a lot. Right. Give give like a 20 second commercial on what the already not yet actually is. Yeah, it's essentially that uh, when Jesus went to the cross and rose again, Jesus has already won the victory. He is already we read in the the scriptures. He's already defeated sin and death. Um, We already have that victory through him, but it's not yet fully realized. We're still a part of a broken world where sin affects, where death still reigns. There's still something better to come. So it's that kind of in-between time where you have victory, but there's still battles going on to use military imagery. That's kind of the already not yet. 
That's good. I'm actually, we're preaching through the Lord's Prayer at Community right now, and I'm preaching this weekend about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this idea is actually pretty central to that. This Praying this prayer is not, gosh, I hope that I go to heaven when I die or that the end times happen. It's it's praying the kingdom of God be happening, breaking through here in our reality, in our world, right here, right now. That's part of what it means to be a Christ follower. And I like that. I like uh, I mean, Saul's is, is so he's such a unique blend of like pastoral and prophetic, which you just don't see a whole lot of. And I think um, his his posture here is really, really helpful. That's absolutely true. So he starts off with Horatio Spafford. Uh, if you don't know the story of Horatio Spafford, uh, he lost uh, four daughters back in the 1800s, I believe it was, uh, on a shipwreck in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And then uh, he uh, took the boat. His wife survived and he would then was taking a boat across the ocean. And when it got, uh, history says that when it got to the spot, the, the captain said, this is where your, your kids died. Cool. When it got to that spot, it is there uh, that he lamented his, quote, sorrows like sea billows roll uh, through the writing of his now famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Yeah. And so uh, that is always so powerful to me that uh, It Is Well is just such a powerful hymn anyway. <laughs> but to know why he wrote it. And uh, Saul says, like most time-tested hymns, as well as every book of the Bible, it is well was created from a place of deep pain. Whenever our church sings it together, I look around the congregation to see how it's impacting. Without fail, those who sing the hymn with the most gusto are the sufferers, people battling cancer, mental illness, addiction, bereavement, social rejection, unemployment, COVID-19 fears, and any number of other trials bellow the lyrics in such a way that says, this is my song. What enables these afflicted souls to keep singing? What empowers them to keep hoping, to keep believing uh, that it is well? It is nothing more and nothing less than the promises of Scripture passed on to us by fellow sufferers combined with the animating work of the Holy Spirit, pressing these promises into their hearts and daily lives. I'll stop there. What a cool, what a great line by Saul's there. But you've done a good job in my life to help me understand like the... um, the value, not values the wrong way, the necessity of lament and, and admitting that this world is hard while holding on to the truths of Jesus at the same time. That's kind of what this is getting at, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think you need to balk at saying value either. I think it's okay to talk about things like grief and, va- and lament as something that actually brings value to us. Because I think sometimes we talk about it in terms of like, well, it's unavoidable, so I might as well lean into it yeah. anyway. And, you know, I know plenty of people who, on one hand, they're like, oh, I've been lamenting. I just didn't know there was categories for it. It's helpful for me to know there's actually a word for it. And there's a whole, you know, there's a whole area of study around it. On the other end, though, I think sometimes people hear lament and they're like, yeah, that's like a fine, churchy, spiritual thing. But I don't think I need to. Or that doesn't bring yeah. like value to my existence. And I would say... It absolutely does, and I think it's important. And Aubrey Sampson's done a wonderful job. Right. Her, her book, The Louder Song, is one of the best books on lament in recent memory. I can't encourage you enough to check that out um, because it does. It frames it in a very uh, accessible way, but also yeah. in a compelling way where someone reading it might think, I've never really considered it to that degree. And this pandemic, I think, is giving us an opportunity to really step back and examine some of those things. Absolutely. Let me read how Saul's closes because he does it so well. For better and for worse, in joy and sorrow and sickness and health, may we never forget, especially in times of pandemic, instability, loss, and even death, that the promises of God remain true yesterday, today, and forever. Not one of those promises risks being negated by horrible circumstances or tragedies. In fact, such tragedies in the hearts and through the stories and lyrics of hope written have the effect of establishing the promises of God. While there are things that can temporarily distance us from our health, our family and friends, our financial security, and even from this world, nothing in all creation will ever be able to distance us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Mm. If this was true for Paul, who faced death all day long, then it must also be true for us. Indeed, This pandemic and all other forms of pandemonium are not okay. And if it's not okay, then it's not the end. Those are the words of Scott Sauls at scottsauls.com. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about churches looking to reopen in Illinois and across the country, and then why you should manage your energy more than your time. That's coming up here on The Common Good. Well, happy Tuesday, friends. Welcome back here to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us here on this Tuesday afternoon. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter and on Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com. There you can find old shows, uh, any of the shows that you've missed. You can also do that on our podcast. Get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, we ask that you subscribe, that you rate, that you review. And uh, I feel like, Ian, if enough people subscribe uh, and rate and review, we're going to we're like, we're sail right past Joel Osteen on the iTunes charts. Don't you think that should be what we're targeting here? Is he? He's what you're aiming after? That is a He's got a podium, Brian. I'm that, coming for Osteen. I'm it, coming for him. A podium <laughs> that comes out of the stage via <laughs> hydraulics. We're not even the same stratosphere. As hey, 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 Joel, this is the best show now. Not not just your best life. Here we come. <laughs> hey, you have these weird flashes of aggression that just don't make any sense. To me. I don't. You're talking about like, oh, I threw my back out playing wiffle ball. And then and then the next moment you're just you're going for blood. I don't I don't I don't understand it. It's very coming for Osteen. <laughs> I am blood. an enigma. That is true. That is true. And now you did bring me back down a few pegs, reminding me of my wiffle ball back injuries. So. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to bring you down. That's not my intent at all. I was I, meant to, I was trying to communicate you're a full spectrum person. <laughs> that is it. Will, I, will, uh, I will go with that. That is true. <laughs> Great. So we do. We are grateful for those of you who have subscribed to the podcast. Uh, and uh, we, if you're not a podcaster, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review. Well, one of the things that has been kind of – on our sphere for, for weeks now, but I feel like it's really starting to bubble to the surface, especially in around here after uh, Governor Pritzker's Restore Illinois plan. Uh, and that is, uh, when can churches reopen? That's a, It's a nationwide question, but it's also a very local question. And so, uh, for instance, hundreds of California churches have band together to plan to reopen on May 31st, Despite what the governor has said, in fact, I just saw today that Los Angeles, their stay at home order has been extended by their governor through July already. Uh, But this is uh, some of the people, some of the churches saying in California saying, nope, we're not going to do it. Uh, There are churches that have begun to sue Illinois Governor uh, J.B. Pritzker in restricting in-person worship to 10 people right now saying, no, we can't do that. Uh, and then uh, today at Religion News, a uh, friend of the show, Ed Stetzer, he wrote an opinion piece entitled, If Costco Can Reopen Safely, Why Not Illinois Churches, Governor Pritzker? And he followed up with a tweet to the governor asking people to retweet it, asking if he and some of the denominational leaders and bigger church leaders in Illinois could have a Zoom call with Governor Pritzker. It'll be interesting to see if that happens. Uh, Before diving into some of the the logistics of all this, I'm just curious as a pastor and somebody, quite frankly, at a very big church that's really affected by this, like the yellow boxes where you're at, um, where are you at in this whole conversation? How are you processing all of this? Well, I can share with you some of how I'm processing it personally. There's a bunch of stuff in the works for us as a church in general. That's one of the strengths, I think, of Dave and John is they – I think for 30 years have just been incredibly strategic leaders and something like this, like a huge curveball that none of us really saw coming in some ways is almost their sweet spot. Like it's very, oh, really? very, it's yeah, it's really odd. It's been so strange. And, and the way they talk about it is remarkably humble, but you know, in some of our staff meetings and some of our leadership uh, training type things, like we've been really surprised at just how gracious God has been to us and how many things, sort of, I mean, it's been odd, the stuff that was like in place or about to be in place for us in terms of infrastructure, like as all of this was kind of crashing in. And so, yeah, we're, we're certainly strategizing uh, some, some ways forward and there's some really exciting things in them. Obviously, like for me, I would have much rather none of this happened in the first place, but it is really, it's pretty inspiring to be a part of a team that is being honest about the disappointment, but then also, 
equally driven towards, all right, if this is our new reality, especially here in Illinois, let's let's start working towards some solutions. How how can we be the best stewards of, you know, this church that we believe God has entrusted to us? And so we're trying to kind of lead with that general posture. Yeah. Have you gotten any um uh, I'll just say that I have. So I'm wondering if you've gotten any people just telling you, why don't we just defy it? Why don't we just meet? And I know you guys can't meet 3000 people probably, but uh, have you increasingly heard that sentiment in any of your circles? Oh, yeah. We're, I mean, I'm currently meeting in a cave right now. <laughs> no, I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, everybody. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, that's it, their strategy, isn't it? That's their strategy. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, again, as a pastor, the, it's always really, really honoring when people feel the safety and the freedom to communicate, not just their encouragements, but also their frustration. So yep. there's not been any shortage of that. And, and I've heard every possible response you can imagine. And those are real. And what, what yes. I really love about our church is that you know, it's not with sort of this fist ablaze in. I'm angry at you. I need you to know about it. So we're like, Hey, I'm, I'm right. frustrated by this whole ordeal. Can you help me understand why blank? Or can you clarify a little bit around why we haven't done blank? And the, the general posture of even the questions themselves from our church has been remarkable. That's good. I want to read some of Stetzer's article here. Uh, he says, uh, he talks first about the plan, and we talked about the tweets from Cisco Cotto where he confirmed that the governor basically said, we got to get the phase five before churches can totally open up. And, and Cisco Cotto said that means it could be a year or more before most churches are allowed to have full services again. Uh, and so uh, Stetcher goes on to say, it will not only hurt churches' ability to survive this crisis, but could also exacerbate the mental health struggles beginning to take hold across the country. Pastors are impatient to engage the increased suffering of people in the churches and in their communities. That work often involves meeting with people in person. For Christian leaders, it is becoming increasingly difficult to persuade uh, to persuade to hold tight and remain distant from those who need their help. Government officials don't help when they push church openings back indefinitely. Stetzer writes, we need a better way. For past several months, a large majority of pastors and churches have served well, partnering with government and caring for their communities. We want to keep doing this. Uh, there's no doubt that the government may require churches to shut down during emergencies. I see the sense of allowing science to set the schedule. However, science tells us that social distancing and other mitigation measures can help limit the spread of the virus. Churches should be allowed to make them work. Following the model applied to grocery stores, Stetzer writes, where times and spaces are the two critical metrics. Rather than simply being focused on a set number of people, churches can reopen while minimizing contact. If Costco can make it work, so can churches. So let me pause and stop there before we finish off this article. Do you find what Ed is saying there to be compelling? And to, do you think something like that would even be compelling uh, to some of the government leaders? I think it it could potentially be compelling I don't know, man. I feel like three months ago I had a much better handle on what I thought people would find compelling and what they don't. It does a little bit feel like all bets are off. Like I literally – this article made me think of a meme I keep seeing over and over again. It said, uh, well, church should have closed, but Home Depot was open, so this Sunday we'll be meeting in plumbing. Like uh, I, was, I got that one, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of this – I don't know. Everything feels like the upside down right now. I, it'll be curious to see. I would be – like if that became – like a Facebook live event or something, I would most certainly be tuning into that. That would be interesting to me. It would be fascinating. And so Stetzer ends it. He says, the First Amendment matters and we want to uphold it in practice. That means not giving ground unnecessarily to government. Instead, we should take the opportunity to find common ground to balance the scientific evidence with the needs of the faith community. Stetzer concludes, I don't see churches opening tomorrow in Illinois. There is still too much community spread. But now is the time to start talking about when and how churches will reopen instead of moving the goalposts so far away that it only provokes frustration. That is at Religion News, Ed Stetzer, who we've had on the show before. We're going to that is up at our Facebook page. We would love uh, to hear your opinion. And Ian, I don't think this is the last time we are going to be talking about when churches should be allowed to be reopened. <laughs> I, you know what? It might come up one or two more times. It may. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to discuss an article that says why you should manage your energy, not your time. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on a beautiful spring afternoon here uh, in the Chicagoland. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, online, 1160hope.com. Find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, and review. I said it earlier in the show, but I do want to uh, wish a very happy 11th birthday to my youngest daughter, Emily. She is 100% not listening to the show right now, but, you know, still makes me a good dad. <laughs> I can now tell her that I did it. So, Well, that might, um, that might make her go back and listen to it, don't you think? No? We'll find it. I'll ask Alexa. Alexa, when uh, play when I said happy birthday. Uh, no, it's it's been a fun day of celebrating in my house. My birthday is May 4th, and we had Mother's Day, then Emily's birthday, then my wife's birthday is on Friday. So it's a, it's a lot of balloons in our house constantly here. So uh, we're excited for that. Well, at something called GetPocket.com, that's a great name for a website, at GetPocket.com, uh, we read this article, Why You Should Manage Your Energy, Not Your Time. The byline says, When our workloads increase, many of us decide to up our number of working hours, but harnessing moments of unfocus might be the key to getting more done in less time. What is going on here at the start of this article? Now, let me uh, read it for you all. It says, for 10 years, Lisa Condon's days were packed like a can of sardines, struggling between five and 20 projects at any one time. The artist and author based in Portland, Oregon, in the U.S., tried to squeeze as much into her daily work schedule as she could. Finally, in the 10th year of her career, she started to have physical symptoms as a result of the stress, chronic back pain, upper neck pain, and headaches. I was waking up with anxiety, feeling a sense of tension in the pit of my stomach, and I had trouble sleeping, she says. Many of us will have that sense uh, that there just is not enough hours in the day to do everything we need to do, and I would add, I'm there as well. Tasks that shouldn't uh, should take only a few minutes can stretch into hours all the while work mounts up. For most, the solution is to work later into the evening or even over the weekend, which leaves many of us feeling exhausted, stressed, and burnt out. But what if working less were the key to getting more done? So then it talks about this next heading is the time management myth. Previously, Congdon would often work from 8 in the morning until 7 at night without a break. It's an easy trap to fall into. It's drilled into us working uh, that working solidly for eight or more hours will increase our output and impress our colleagues and managers. But in reality, even the traditional nine to five workday is not conducive to productivity. A workplace study found an average working professional experiences 87 interruptions oh per day, making it difficult to remain productive and focused for a full day. Knowing something had to give, Congdon began to adjust her approach to work and restructure her day to achieve the same amount of output without working around the clock. She decided to split her day into fewer 45-minute segments and aim to maximize her productivity within those strict time sessions. I'll stop there. Uh, does 87 interruptions a day surprise you? I heard you gasp. Uh, at first, I was like, that's enormous. And I'm like, in a day? That actually sounds a little low. But yeah, we do <laughs> We do just get interrupted by so many things. And um, I, this, I'm fascinated by this concept that she decided to split her day into fewer 45 minute segments to maximize her. Pro- so basically she did, uh, instead of running a marathon, if you will, she's just doing lots of sprints. Like we're going to sprint for 45 minutes and right. I'm going to, I'm going to be as productive as I can. And then I'm going to stop. And then another 45 minute sprint. And then I'm going to stop. Uh, just a totally different way. Uh, to think about work and the workday. It's it's very different, but it seems to be working for her. Yeah, I wonder if, too, like it's been interesting. I've looked at uh, over the years, like the different sleep patterns of high-performing CEOs and artists and athletes. And what I've discovered is there actually isn't like one cohesive, hey, everyone who was ever successful, yep. this is when they go to bed, this is when they wake up, this is how much water they drink. Like obviously some of those like, Getting good sleep and drinking water is important to health. But I was really surprised the more I drilled down into it, like, oh, there's a pretty rich myriad of approaches that seem to work pretty well for these 20, 30, 40 notoriously successful people, uh, yep. which is tricky because, I, you know, a lot of it, a lot of this whole conversation kind of hinges on like we have the one secret or the one trick to maximize. Right. Your, well, that's right. everyone's brains are different. Everyone's temperaments are different. Everyone has different capacity and output and that's the that's the hard part is like learning what really works for your rhythms and doing the hard work of coming to that conclusion usually requires a good deal of trial and error. 
Yeah, you bring up sleep. I remember reading about, and now they run crazy hours, but basketball players, um, there was this whole movement that started like 10 or 15 years ago, or maybe a little bit more. Now, they're often flying until all wee hours of the morning, but basically an NBA player's schedule is on a game day is shoot around in the morning, and then they all basically go back to the hotel and take a nap hmm. before the game. It's just kind of this. Listen to this statistic. This was in 2014. The social networking company, the Drogium Group, used a time-tracking productivity app to study what habits set their most productive employees apart. Here's what they found. They said, surprisingly, the top 10% of employees with the highest productivity didn't put in longer hours than anyone else. Instead, often, they didn't even work eight-hour days. Instead, the key to their productivity was that for every 52 minutes of focused work, they took a 17-minute break. For every 52 minutes of focused work, they took a 17-minute break. And they found that to be kind of... uh, the the thread amongst their most productive people. And I, I'm challenged by this, man, because I don't know how you function, but say writing a sermon or just trying to get work done. Uh, or when I think back to college, writing a paper, right? It wasn't like, all right, I need to take a break to kind of recharge. It was like, press ahead, press ahead, press ahead, more hours, more hours, more hours. Yet we know that that often comes with diminishing returns. So this makes sense but it's not often how I live or I think how many of us live in our work in our work days. Well, and it references to a book that my good buddy, John Hughes, who's also been on the show, Cal Newport, who wrote a book called Deep Work Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. John loves this book so much. And John is one of the most like organized, detail oriented. Like he just has a really remarkable kind of sense of I mean, not just even in time management, but his budget and how he you know, smokes meat and like, he's just very focused in that regard. But uh, Cal reports though, that as few as one to three hours of concentrated work could serve to be as effective as a traditional work day, which sort of wow. harkens to like the Tim Ferriss five hour work week. Um, yep, he's, he's built an empire kind of based on that premise. Uh, he goes on to say in the absence of clear indicators of what it means to be productive and valuable in their jobs, Many workers turn back toward an industrial indicator of productivity, doing lots of stuff in a visible manner, which is different now in a pandemic, but not totally different because there still is some need for some product or output to kind of at the end of the day, like this is what I've been working on. But I totally get this. I've heard a lot of people talk about like, yeah, my boss is around. I'm just trying to like appear busy, just pretend Pull up a spreadsheet so it looks like you're doing something important. Um, I'm amazed at how often I hear things like that. He goes on then to this article goes on then to talk about the next big thing being distraction. Uh, and I never get distracted with Facebook and Twitter or right. anything else that? going. Exactly. And uh, but he uh, the author of this gives some some good thought about deep work, basically, like making there be very specific times where you're going to ruthlessly get rid of distraction. Uh, and I totally resonate with that because sometimes I'll be sermon prepping, say, and then just jump over to Twitter at all. T- and you're like, what am I doing? Um, and he also says, in order to make the most of our focus and energy, we also need to embrace downtime or as Newport suggests, be lazy. Mm. Idleness, he says, is not just a vacation an indulgence or a vice. It is an indispens- It is as indispensable to the brain as vitamin D is to the body. Wow. Idleness is paradoxically necessary to getting any work done. That is so backwards. Idleness is paradoxically necessary to getting any work done. This makes complete sense and is so different than how we normally function. Why do you think it's so counter to how most people function? Like, What is, what is at the center of that? Because we think just work more, right? Just more hours or uh, just keep going, keep grinding. Why, right? why do like, we think that, though? I'm curious. why. Because think I think that? it's been what just has been handed down. Like, uh, why do we do a lot of things? It's because it's how we've always done it, right? How many things in your life do you do? Because it's always just how you were. It's how it's always been done. Yeah. And so it becomes counterintuitive. But but this does make sense. What do we need to do to recharge to then be better? I think it's just out of habit. Why quickly do you think we we do uh, things the way we've always done? them? I think because it's how Brian Fromm has always told me to do it. So I just, I've just <laughs> done it. No, I, I think it's deeper than that. I think that's part of it. I think we certainly are handed like 
patterns and tools from institutions and our parents. I think it's, I think it's deeper than that. I think it comes down to uh, how would I distill it down? I think it comes down to desire. I think the word is okay. desire. I think it's a desire for significance or for meaning or for purpose or for identity. And we think that it's found in how much can I bring or contribute to the world? And I think that drives for a lot of us an insatiable drive that is sometimes uh, never exhausted. That's really good. Well, coming up next. Uh, anyway, you can find that article real fast at our Facebook page. It's a good read. We'd encourage you to do so. Coming up next at a religion news, it says this before we get, quote, back to normal. We need to grieve and pray. We're going to look at that article next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. i got to be honest, I like, I like getting back into segments with, hey, friends. It just feels like, we're a, feels like we're family. It feels like we're friends, a community. Hey, friends. I'm not paying super close attention right now, but I think you've done it for every segment this show. Uh-oh. No, now I'm in a rut. I got to go back and listen. No, 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 okay. no, 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 no. It, no, that's not. It's not a rut if it's warm and genuine. Nah, so if I come back, if I come back from the rut. next one, like, hey, jerks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what's up, idiots? Yeah, don't do that. That's not. A, that's not a good way to come back at just, all. Just try to keep it keep it fresh a little bit here. So. <laughs> People are like, no, 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 <laughs> go back to rut. Rut was way nicer. Rut, rut worked better for job security. <laughs> hey, fools, what's up? Hey, uh, fools. You could just start like a segment yelling raka. <laughs> Is that too what, esoteric a joke? That's too, I was that's say, too that narrow. That was a great pastor joke. That was a good <laughs> pastor joke. Uh, at Religion News, before we get back to normal, we need to grieve and pray. Uh, this good article written by Bishop Scott Jones. But before we do that, I would love to hear a little bit about our friends at Thrivent. Let me tell you some things about Thrivent. Brian, did you know I'm a Thrivent member? Were you aware of that? I've, I've heard. I was aware. Yes. Man, I could not encourage you enough. I won't mention who was I was with before Thrivent. I don't think I'm allowed to do that. But Thrivent has exceeded expectations. They're a, a wonderful Fortune 500 non-for-profit that's been around for more than 100 years. They also have just a really great kind of bedrock of Christian ethos, which when it comes to my money was really, really important. Also, though, if you're looking for a career change, and I know a bunch of you probably are, you can go to thrivent.com slash careers and learn more about opportunities there. Plus, fully in fashion, then Thrivent has been providing all sorts of webinars for free for helping navigate this pandemic and this quarantine and stress and leadership and crisis and all those things. Uh, we've been posting a lot of that to our Facebook page, but you can also go to thriving.com to learn more or to their Facebook page. Again, totally for free. I highly recommend you check them out. I do appreciate that we're able to uh, discuss them on a daily basis. It's an organization you and I both believe in, right? Like yeah, we right. could genuinely say good organization, get connected with them uh, with a clear conscience, right? And not just because yeah, that's kind of nice, like, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> It is kind of nice. Not that any of our past ones didn't fit that easy either, but oh this boy. one, nice. oh boy, this one is nice to be able to go. You know what? We're going to continue to push them because uh, we believe in them. So, uh, at Religion News, Bishop Scott Jones uh, wrote an article entitled, an opinion piece entitled, "Before We Get Back to Normal, We Need to Grieve and Pray." Let me just read some of this for us. Like many pastors and church leaders around the world, I've been grieving the damage caused by COVID nineteen. People have died. People have suffered physically, jobs have been lost, the economy has been disrupted, and church has been halted in many places. Yet God is at work. We're mindful of the promise in Paul's letter to the Romans. We know that all things work together for good uh, for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, which is why I have discouraged United Methodists from holding in-person worship during the month of May. Uh, He's a bishop in the United Methodist Church. Uh, and why I am not afraid to advocate for continued online church for the foreseeable future. The Lord is moving in ways many of us have not experienced in our lifetime, and this movement will not stop because we're worshiping from home. In fact, I think it may increase. I have drawn inspiration, he writes, on how to respond for this crisis from the book of Nehemiah. When we learned about the deplorable state of Jerusalem, when he learned about the deplorable state of Jerusalem, this exiled prophet living in the Persian capital did not get to work right away. Instead, he sat, uh, he stopped, he sat down and he wept. He cried and he mourned for the loss and he did so openly. Hmm. This is a critical reminder for church leaders that compassion should always precede action. Hmm. Yes, there is a lot to do during COVID-19 to make sure everyone is physically and spiritually well but we can't neglect people's experiences of pain. 
There have been many, there have been family deaths. People are isolated and lonely. Others are worried about money and are food insecure. These individuals need to know that not only do their leaders see their hurt, but they feel it. Grieving is not only purposeful for showing compassion to our congregations, it also helps us reorient our hearts to depend on God rather than ourselves. Therefore, mourning what we have lost amid COVID-19 is a critical step before reopening the doors of our churches. I'll stop there. Uh, what are your thoughts on taking time to grieve and pray? Uh, because I think a lot of us, yourself, myself, our first move is probably, what do we have to do? What do we have to do? What do we have to do? And he's saying we cannot miss the step of mourning what's been lost, grieving for the people uh, who have suffered. Uh, I find this to be a helpful reminder because I don't naturally pause to mourn and to think and to grieve. Well, yeah. Why do you think that is? You've mentioned that before on the show. Uh, one is it's uncomfortable, but two, I mm. think uh, I tend to just move towards what do we do? Like, what's the next, like, what's you and I have talked a lot about, even when it comes to like listening to our show, like listening back, you tend to listen back. I'm always like, why would you listen back? Like, let's just worry about tomorrow's and tomorrow's I'm kind of a, to a detriment, I think in my own life, I tend to be uh future focused, like what's next, what's next. Um, and so it's that. And, you know, sometimes uh, if I'm truthful, it's what is grieving and mourning really going to accomplish? And I know that that's uh, a wrong statement because you even see it in this article. But I think there's some of that. Like what's 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 mourning over what's happened really going to accomplish? Let's get to the work that's before us. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. A couple of things that I find interesting about the story of Nehemiah, too, is like one. Right, he was a cupbearer. Isn't that right? Like he was yeah. he was in a pretty a pretty baller position. So. He'd never he'd never been to this city that he was like lamenting over, which is interesting. Like he feels this deep connection to his history, right? To like the people it represented. The other thing though that's interesting to me is that the text mentions how he he fasted and prayed. It doesn't say that he whined. It said that he he fasted and prayed, which is way beyond just uh, an emotion, but it's also not just a flash in the pan. It's like this abiding concern for the hurts and struggles of of people around him. And I, I, I also find it interesting, like, I don't know, I forget the specifics, but if I remember the text correctly, he, he actually prayed for like four months and mm. the work of rebuilding the wall took like, what was it? 52 days. Yeah, that sounds right. Like a 52 day project had a four month foundation of prayer. Like that to mm. me is so opposite of how I tend to order my life and my days and my ministry and my energy It's like. His and again, I, I'm w- I'm with you. Like you know, I do go back and listen to the show probably too much, <laughs> but I also tend to sort of be like, all right, what's the next thing? What's the next skill? What's the next yeah. project? What's the next? Like I like dreaming stuff up. I like being creative. I like solving problems. Uh, I know a lot of people listening probably feel the same way. The idea of pausing for four months to lament and grieve and pray and fast. Um, I don't know. I I think of that story. And I think, man, sometimes I need to confess for just being too busy. I have a lot of other things to crowd yes. out the stuff that really matters the most. Right. And I think, I think it's probably safe to say that the condition of our heart determines what we see. Right. And if we're not actually allowing God to do the hard work of like chipping away in our heart, stuff that isn't good, isn't right. That's going to affect the way that we look at the world. And and the irony there is that we, when we aren't looking at the world correctly, our solutions aren't going to be the types of solutions that bring God honor. So in our obsession to get to productivity, we sometimes are like doing more harm than good because yeah. we're not first like allowing God to really transform us. Yeah. It's, I find it so easy. Uh, I, well, I'll put it this way. I find it much easier to preach sermons about Sabbath rest and about, you know, uh, pausing, like taking serious time to pray uh, and to reflect. I find those a lot easier to talk about in sermons than to put into practice in my own life at times. And so, um, yeah, I, I think this guy makes a really good point about, Uh, He ends it by saying this. He said, the church and its leaders must model compassion, prayer, and courage to a world in desperate need of hope. Mm -hmm. These present challenges are tough, and we've all experienced difficulties in varying degrees. We must prepare to live with this pandemic for months to come. At the same time, many congregations are discovering new ways of worshiping God, serving their communities, and being the church. We are never without hope, and the ability and necessity to minister is ever present. 
God is at work through his church during this pandemic. I'll read that again. God is at work through Mm -hmm. his church during this pandemic. We serve a miracle working God who made a way, who made way for Nehemiah and 